0: In your Bibles, Ephesians chapter three, we're at the last two verses of this chapter. Let me ask you a question, show of hands, how many of you were here the very first week we started Ephesians? Do you remember I asked you to do me a favor? Do you remember that? I asked you to stick it out for the whole thing, Um, not to make you feel bad or anything. Um, But I kind of try to make the point at the time that you wouldn't build an understanding of Paul's total message unless you went through the whole process, that you might miss out at some of those the profound, amazing truth that he's given us. And, you know, it's, it's so great. Some theologians call it the Grand Canyon of Scripture. It's one of the wonders of God to see it depicted in six simple chapters to the church in Ephesus. And so we wanted to get there. And uh, now I'm not going to ask you if you've done the last 18 weeks of our series together, uh, but it, to me... Just in my own personal study, it's been pretty incredible for for me to go through that. Today we get to finish the first half of Ephesians in chapter 3, which um, if you didn't know, let me just give you the first three chapters are the guts. They're the heart of Paul's message. In fact, I would suggest to you that without the first three chapters, the last three chapters would be nothing but religion and pointless. Um, The three first chapters of Ephesians are Paul's theology. It's what Paul knew about God and what he had done for us, his people. It is what motivated his excitement when he started the letter. It's what motivates his excitement in what we read today. It is is what he has told us over and over again, what created and sustains the church, God's people. It is the reason why Paul began this whole section with praise. He can't wait to tell the church everything that we have in Christ. And so if you remember, uh, I'm going to point to it, chapter 1, verse 3, this is how we started this discussion. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Well, that, that statement was just like a teaser because he launches into a, an overwhelming array of God's graces for the church. We've done it for 18 work, weeks now, looking at these graces, and I never get tired of repeating it. I, I told you last week, and just to fly over what it included, so let me do it again that God, before the beginning of the world, four loved and four chose a people of his own. That's what Paul started this letter with, that a people redeemed by Christ's blood, that he lavished his grace on what we didn't deserve, that his grace united us, outsiders with God, people at war and hostility with God. He brought us together and made us his people. That he gave us a heavenly inheritance, that we are sealed, protected, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's what he's told us we have in Christ that he made us alive to God, that we were once a people far off without hope and without God, Paul says. We are now his children. And that he took from this dead group of people, this people that he made alive with all the issues between one another, the hatred that exists, and he makes one new man, one new woman out of that, this third race of people, God's people. That's what Paul has told us. And it's even more profound than I can even tell you in like a two minute read like that. But all of that doctrine, the first three chapters, sets up the second half of Ephesians that we're about to get into next week and following. And the point of the last three chapters is how do all these amazing revelations of God's love and intentions for us, how does it affect us? In other words, what is the application and implications of that doctrine? Well, we're about ready to start 22 weeks on the last three chapters. And let me just tell you, it's going to get real. Because with this amazing truth, Paul's going to come into our lives and it's going to get really personal about our lives. He's going to call us to live lives, such lives that match the first three chapters we confess. So we're going to own this idea that God for love us, that God chose us, that God gives us grace, establishes power in us with the Holy Spirit, makes us a new people, that he's going to say, well, then this should be in your life. It should match. He's going to call us to grow with each other in grace. He's going to tell us to speak the truth to one another, deal with our anger, to not steal, to not be bitter, control our mouths, be kind, forgive each other, be pure in our minds. He's going to offer instructions from wives to husbands, husbands to wives, children to parents. He's going to talk about employers to employees and employees to to employers. He's going to get so personal to talk about the fight of faith and he's going to arm us with the armor of God in the fight of faith. He's going to tell us it's real and it's difficult. You won't understand or care about what he's going to say in three chapters unless you appreciate and love the first three. His doctrine drives our application. Does that make sense? We're going to get into that in in next week and following. But before we do, Paul stops for two verses and he offers us what some theologians call the greatest doxology in Scripture. Doxology is a word for praise or worship. And some have called it the grandest two-verse sentence or statement in the Scriptures, And the reason why, if you've been paying attention and gone through this whole journey, the reason should just pop in your head. It should be obvious. And here's what's obvious about it. Because getting God, truly getting God, always leads to doxology. And Paul got God. Once he disclosed everything he knew about what God has done for him, he explodes in praise. It was the obvious next thing in his mind. Um, and what starts in this explosion of praise is what some would call, maybe in your own experience, the most familiar, popular, most quoted and used verse in the Scriptures. Look at verse 20 of chapter 3, and I'll, I'll show you. Tell me if you haven't read or studied this before. Now, to him who's able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. How many of you have read that before? How many of you had somebody preach it at you? Okay. Okay. Well, you're going to get it again today. But either way, you're familiar with this passage. It's, a, it's an amazing passage. But I when I was studying, I go, wait a minute. You could almost read all the context from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through to chapter 3, and skip verse 20, and land in verse 21, and still get kind of the response to the doctrine. In fact, just for kicks, let's read it. Start in verse 14. And we're going to read all the way through 19. Skip verse 20 and read 21. And tell me if you, this doesn't sound consistent with Paul's theme here. This is what he says, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, That according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Reads good, doesn't it? Like you just skip verse 20 and Paul's made his point. Doxology, praise, worship is in response to what he has said in three chapters. So I stopped and asked myself the question, well, what's verse 20 here for? If if what he wants to do is just respond in an explosion of praise to, to what God has done, verse 20 seems to be way more specific than that. You might say, if I ask you the question, why is it here? Well, Tim, because it's true, and it is true. Verse 20 is here because it's amazing, and that is true, it is both of those things. But I'm gonna tell you why I think verse 20 is here. I need you to pay attention so you get this. I think verse 20 is here for the cynic. The person who has journeyed enough, at least enough, to read through the first three chapters of this profound doctrine of what's ours in Christ Jesus, and conclude there's no way these things can be yours. I think verse 20 is here for the distraught, who thinks that their suffering and pain is your inheritance, not the inheritance Paul is talking about. I think verse 20 is here for the person with a thousand questions, and a thousand questions lead to another thousand questions, and in your mind, you just keep ending up and how could this possibly be true? I think verse 20 is here for the sinner and the struggler who thinks that their sin has put them into detention, not into blessing. And Paul's been saying, you have more. You're profoundly blessed and loved in Christ, and yet your sin makes you go, there's just no way. I'm still outside looking in. I think verse 20 is for the downhearted. I think verse 20 is for the Romans 7 guy or girl who says of their life, this is more of the narrative of my life. I do the very things I don't want to do. That's my story. Some of you might say, Paul, I love, I absolutely love all that you've said, but it drives me crazy because I can't see it happening for me. What I've done is just too bad. The relationships in my life are just too broken. The hatred in my heart towards others is too deep. I've got too many questions, too many doubts. So for you, you can't even get out of Paul's prayer. Paul prays that you might know the width, the height, the depth, the scope of God's love. Paul prays that you might know the fullness, the fullness, be filled with all the fullness of God. And you, in your mind, you look at that and go, that's just absurd. That's beyond my comprehension. I understand. But even though those wonderful, profound statements by Paul might be beyond your comprehension, here's what verse 20 is for it is not beyond God's desire or ability. You might not be able to get it into your head. You might have all these questions. You might see in the spiritual mirror more you than him, and you conclude there's no way that's possible. Okay, whatever. Whatever challenges you have to embrace what Paul has said so far, know this, that it's not beyond God's willingness and ability. Verse 20 is here to tell us when we doubt that he, he alone is super able. Verse 20 is here to tell us when our hearts want to gang-tackle us and condemn us that God is greater than our hearts. That's why verse 20 is here, to encourage the church. Verse 20, to me, is the last statement of truth Paul makes before he begins to generate his praise, his doxology. In fact, here's how Eugene Peterson even paraphrased this verse. I like it. He says, and the truth is this, our God can do anything beyond your wildest dreams, by his limitless power and gently, deeply working within us. So my prayer, and perhaps maybe after today, you're gonna go home and write your own doxology. My prayer is that something will happen in your heart and you'll be overcome by this truth and it will superabound over your doubts, your fears, your struggles, your issues, and you're gonna be left with God. Thank you, he's awesome. Now, if you were to be a commentary reader um, and grab a commentary, you'll probably find that it contains an outline of, of verse 20, and, and most of them that I read kind of have a pyramid of outline. Some are described as a pyramid of God's power for us or a pyramid of praise. I saw it so many times, I'm not even certain who I can give it credit to, um, but I was really profoundly helped by James Boyce's outline, so using that to unpack this, I think there is five steps for us in understanding this amazing thing that God has done through Christ for us, what he's able to do. So let me unpack it just as it lays out, at least in thought. Now, it's not going to be in order of the verse, but just watch the thought here. Here's the first step to this pyramid of God's power in our life. Now, him who is able to do. You should circle the word do. The word do means to make, to cause, to bring about, to provide, to create or accomplish. If you remember verses 14 and 19 that I just read to you, Paul has just thrown down some big stuff, that we'd be strengthened with power of the Holy Spirit, that that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith, we'd be rooted and grounded in love, that we would would know the the beyond knowledge part of the magnitude of Christ's love and be filled with all the fullness of, of God. And you conclude, sounds too good to be true. How is that even possible? I'll make it simple based on this one word. God does it. He alone does it. He brings it about. He is able. He has no limits. So what we can't muster in our own flesh to believe, what our emotions won't even help us with, God does. Amen? In fact, I will tell you, everything in the first three chapters are impossible without God doing. You're not going to get anything unless God does. In fact, the last three chapters are an impossibility without God doing in our life. You could pick up this book, and and I know it's a redemptive story. I know there are a lot of titles for the totality of cover to cover. But let's just, for sake of this conversation, let's call it a book of God can. Because every single narrative is God doing. Every one. Example, God made a promise and kept it to a man, an old man named Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And He did. When God rescued Israel out of slavery to Egypt and then rushed them into the wilderness and then guarded them in the Red Sea and from the approaching armies of Pharaoh, God did. To those three young Hebrew boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, God did in spite of the flames. To Daniel, in the mouth of the lion, he didn't experience that because God did, superabundantly did for them. To a boy that didn't matter and no one would know who he called to be king in David's life, God did. To take a bunch of nobodies, seriously nobodies, that nobody would care about and use them to preach the message of Jesus all the way around the world and here we are reading their words, God did. It's a book of God does. That's what it is about. So, how is this possible? Just remind yourself of that word. Our God is able. Let me give you the second step. He's able to do all that we ask or think. If we're honest with each other, one of the many hurdles in believing that God will do things in our lives is that we think he's got way bigger things to do than deal with us. Do you ever think that? I mean, God? Who are you to be asking God stuff? And when you don't receive an answer, when you think you need an answer or the answer that you want, you're convinced the reason why is because he's got bigger fish to fry than you. You might not say it, you feel it. If that is your struggle, then please circle the word we in this verse. We is crucial because we in this verse is the children of God. We are is the emphasis behind John's instructions or his encouragements to the church in 1 John 3. See what love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God and that's what we are. We are God's children. Our God is the perfect Father. His interests are in His children. We've already seen in this letter Paul unpacks some amazing truths about our relationship to the Father where he tells us in chapter 2 we have access to Him. We used to be at war with him, at odds with him, outside of him. He brought us in and brought us access to the Father. He talks about it in chapter 3 that we now have, we can have boldness before him. And let me just suggest to you this truth. Only children, true children, are successful at being bold. I'll give you an illustration. If I'm laying on the couch, which I do all the time, um, and my kid runs in and says, Dad, the brakes are out of my car. I get off the couch, I go to the garage, and I fix the brakes. If my neighbor kid comes over and knocks on the door and says, my brakes are out, I give him a card to a shop. <laughs> my kid can be bold. There's access. The relationship means everything to, to us. There, there possibly is another hurdle to, to believing God will do for us, and that is that we, we're clueless on what to ask. And we're convinced because we're not precise that somehow we're missing out. I don't know what to think. I don't know what to ask. I'm lost. But I need you to remember this. God isn't limited by what you know. He's not limited by what you think. He's not limited by what you ask. Here's one author's thought on this. The apostle does not limit the father's care or ability to what we ask. There's too much of our humanity, get this, there's too much of our humanity in our request for them to govern God's responses. That's profound. Because we're human and our requests are feeble and finite, we want dessert when we need meat, success when we need humility, and safety when we need godly courage or Christ-like sacrifice. We ask within the limits of our human vision, but he's able to do more. He sees into eternity what is needful for our soul and for the souls of those whom our lives will touch across geography or across generations. For example, I know to ask only what I think is good for my immediate family. He knows what is good for my children's children and what will bring, about, bring multitudes into his kingdom from places I cannot name and I can't even imagine. You're getting your head expanded on the realities of what God can do in spite of what you don't know to ask? That's sometimes a hurdle. There's another hurdle that we have or struggle with, if we're honest. There are things we think that we can't even bring ourselves to ask for. They're just on the crazy list. And I'm not certain we write that out. It just kind of, it's a feeling. It's a thought, really. There's a list of things we know we're supposed to pray for. God, make me, make me like you. Uh, give me patience We'll ask those things. They're going to list, and they're the high confidence list. These are the things we're certain that God wants to give us, and so we pray into those things, and then there's this no confidence list, this list of things that you don't know if he wants to do, and you conclude he could. He, he totally could, but then you end up with a blank line. I don't know. Maybe he's busy. Maybe he wouldn't. Maybe there's a thousand reasons why God wouldn't respond to me, so I won't, I won't write that down. It's just a, it's just a dream, really. I mean, I have so many examples in my own life of this, but when I was a young man as a pastor's kid, it wasn't until like 1980 when the lights came on, and they came on in the most horrendous way for me, Um, sin. I was skippity-doo-dah kind of a kid until God said, here's what you are, and the weight was unbearable. I didn't even know what to ask. I didn't know where to go, and then somebody said, repent. It was all it took. It's all it took, like leave it. And I did, and God changed my life. And as soon as that happened, I thought, well, if this is real, man, I've been looking at it for 20 years and I didn't even know it. I'm going to serve Him. I'll be a youth pastor, is what I thought. So off, off to college I go to never finish. And then begin years of me, for lots of reasons, lots of opportunities or lack thereof, of it not happening. In fact, I was at one church for 13 of those years. And I uh, had the head elder meet me in the foyer one day, just a drive by, just a friendly drive by. And he said, never going to happen. You're never going to be a pastor. It was so encouraging. <laughs> and his reasons was because I didn't have a seminary degree. And so I just stopped dreaming that one. It went on, I mean, I didn't even say it anymore. So the only thing I prayed was, okay, God, well, I'll just give me opportunities to serve and I'll hunker down and serve. You get my point? That was 30 years ago. God does what he does. And, he, and there's this list of, Beyond what I can imagine. In fact, the NIV even uses this word imagine to describe all that we can ask. One writer said it perfectly. God's able to do the things that I only think about, but I'm too afraid to ask. That's what God can do. And before we move on, let me just make certain I highlight a word for you. Do you see the word all in that first sentence? He was able to do far more abundantly than all. You see it? Okay, look up. Let's do this. What do you think all means? <laughs> I'm certain Paul had a word for half or quarter or sometimes. He didn't use it. He used all. All means all. And if you want a see- secret to a stronger prayer life, then it's when God's ability to do all, we ask or imagine, moves us to pray for miracles. Because our God can do what? All. Beyond. Beyond. Let me give you the third step in this pyramid. He's able to do far more than all we ask or think. Let me just remind you, what you're hearing right now is not fiction. (laughs) As crazy and absurd and potentially silly this might sound to you, Paul is being honest. You might say, okay, I'm okay, I'm, I'm, I'm tracking with you, God can do above what we ask or think, and maybe he can do all we ask or think, but this, now this just gets to absurd levels, far more than we ask or think. Well, let me just tell you that I really believe that the most common thing that God does is the far more. I'll use another illustration. I don't like to use a lot of illustration in my own life, but I'm gonna do it today and risk it. Um, this goes back 30 years plus. My wife wanted to have children. I didn't care. Okay, It wasn't like I didn't love my children or whatever, but it's just like I was a guy. I was a young guy. You don't think about stuff like that. I thought it was the inevitable part of the next phase of your life, but she really wanted kids, and for some reason it wasn't easy. It wasn't happening. And she prayed one prayer, one prayer. She told me about it. God, give me a son, and I'll give him back to you. He gave him four. Four. <laughs> She never asked for four. (laughs) Above and beyond, four. And I asked for none. (laughs) Do you see what I'm saying? And I would tell you now, true statement, one of the greatest joys of my life is being a father. I didn't know. I didn't know what to ask for. And I never asked for that. Far above, far more than we could ask. Again, using Abraham's illustration, Abraham said, God, I I got no kids. I got no line no legacy. Can you give me one? God says, I'll give you so many, it will be like the sand on the seashore. Not only is Abraham the father of all Israel, he's the father of faith. Billions of people throughout history draw their line to Abraham. He never asked to be the father of everything, did he? Come on, did he? No. I would suggest to you, if we're honest, If you were to stop for a second, of all the things that God is currently doing in your life and all the blessings you currently live with, you didn't ask for any of them or many of them. You just receive. You don't ask God to get closer to you in your trouble. You never say, God, give me trouble so I can know you. If you do, we got a counseling department for you. (laughs) Nobody lines up for that. But look what God's doing, far more than you could possibly imagine of the things you take for granted every day that you live in this country and you eat whenever you want to eat, whatever you want to eat, and you don't have any suffering, really? You didn't make that a prayer. You just took it for granted, right? God does more than you even know to ask, far more. Fourth step. He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all we ask or think. I'm stealing the word beyond from the New American Standard because it includes it in there. And there's a reason for that. The original language uses the word super abundantly. NIV says immeasurably. Either way, the point that Paul's making here is that what God provides for us is so grand, Paul has to make up a word to describe it. This is a Paul word only. This word doesn't exist in the language. He made it up. And the word is a super superlative. It means the highest form of comparison imaginable imaginable. Infinitely so more is Paul's point. Now, I would confess to you, I think it's a little bit impossible to know exactly what Paul has in mind when he's talking about the abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think. Some have suggested that he's just talking about the span of a human life, your life, my life. Like if you want to try to calculate from birth to death everything God will do in your life to love your life, to love your heart, you couldn't count it. You you couldn't get your head around it. Possibly that's true. One writer put it this way, and I think it's profound when he says, his loving surpasses our knowledge. That's what he said in the prayer. But he says his doing surpasses our requests and even our imagination. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. For those in Christ, he also promises to bring the full measure of the wisdom and powers of his Godhead to answer us. How can you measure what he can do He holds the whole earth in his hand. He created the universe but continues to control the light in your room. The decay of an atom in the most distant galaxy. He makes the flowers grow and the snow to fall. He rides on the wings of a storm and holds a butterfly in the air. And he who was before the beginning of all we know still uses time as his tool of healing, restoration, and retribution. Our thoughts are as a window to him. Generations to come from us are already fully known to him who loves our family more than we could ever love them. He lo- looks at the length of our life as the handbreadth that makes our soul, though sinful, his treasure forevermore. Such is the God who hears our prayers and is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask or all that we can imagine. <clears throat> Possibly, Paul has in mind the scope of our life. And he would be, right, I couldn't measure what God has done. I couldn't measure what he is doing or will do. It's profound. But there's a possibility that Paul has in mind eternity, the future. In fact, there's a word that he uses in talking about tomorrow, the future, eternity, in chapter two that sounds very much like this super superlative he uses here in chapter three. Let me remind you what it says. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, here's the phrase. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Possibly Paul's thinking about eternity. That's what Boyce thinks. He says, Paul's not thinking of earthly things here. He's going beyond those to think of the blessings of God's exhaustible kindness towards us through Christ in eternity. Since eternity is immeasurable, so also are the works that God will do for us in the life to come. So maybe it's the span of your life. Maybe it's the eternity of forever. I don't know if it matters, to be honest with you. I'm not really concerned. I think it might be both and. The point that Paul is making is that God will do a superabounding work in us now and forever, and you can't calculate it. And if you're thinking here, and if you're listening to this, you might get your hopes up. You might just be all excited that he's going to do far more abundantly than you could ask or even imagine. But if that little dark side of you comes out and says, okay, how? How's this going to happen? He gives us that answer. That's the last step according to the power at work within us. That phrase at power is a present tense. It's at work in us right now. It's a power that Paul has already taught the church, already talked about the church as a resurrection power. This is what he said in chapter 1. He's talking about the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. He says, and what is the the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? Do you have any doubt about God doing far more abundantly beyond all that you can ask or think? Exhibit A, the resurrection. God raised Jesus from the dead. He raised the saints from the dead. The resurrection is all you need to know about God's ability to go far more abundantly than you could ask or imagine. The resurrection says everything. It has proven over thousands and thousands of years to take a ragtag group of fearful men and turning the world upside down with their message. That's an amazing statement of the resurrection in human hearts. Billions and billions throughout history have been changed by the power of the resurrection, many of them enduring persecution and suffering. You can't even spell because of the resurrection. Now, maybe that whole thing is just too big for you. You see the resurrection power in the saints or in Jesus and go, well, how does it affect me? Let me try to encourage you. Just look at the power of God in his resurrection displayed in your life. I confess to you it might be a whisper. That does not make it not real. Here's what happens by the power of the resurrection in the hearts of believers. (laughs) You start thinking different. You don't need full knowledge to start thinking different. You were one way, in darkness, going fast and hard the wrong direction, and something made you think different. And then guess what happened? start to feel different. Brand new affections show up, and you never had them before. You were just in love with you. You were a narcissist on fire, and suddenly God says, wait a minute, there's some other desire you have, and you don't know where that came from. It might be a small voice. Suddenly now you use words like repentance, and you couldn't spell it before. You have this thing that the scriptures talk about, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians, a godly sorrow. And you know there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow says I don't wanna suffer the consequence of my stupidity. Godly sorrow says I have grieved my father. And you know there's a difference. There's a difference in you. There's a conviction that never existed before. There's worship coming out of your life and there's faith that you never saw before. And I'm saying it might be small. It might not be perfect, but it's present. And if it's there, if it's small, then it's real because God does what you cannot do on your own. You can't muster new thoughts and new affections and new convictions and repentance and worship and faith. You can't make that on your own. God has to give it as a gift. So if you're sitting here going, I barely have some of those. Praise God, you have some of those. Those are the work of the Spirit of God, the resurrection power of Christ in you. And what he's doing in you now, he's not finished until he's finished. And let me just encourage you, if your walk of faith feels like a fight, welcome to the club. That's what it is. It is a fight. Paul's going to get to our armor later. But his power is seen in the struggle he said paul that is in philippians 1 i'm sure of this that he who began the good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of christ jesus he started it we don't finish it everybody happy about that can i do something i don't normally do can i take and blur the scriptures for a second i want to take philippians 1 and weave it into galatians 3:20 because I think it's a profound, absolute truth about what we're talking about. Listen to this. He who began a good work in you is able to do far more abundantly beyond what you ask or think according to the power at work within us, and he will complete his work guaranteed on the day of Christ Jesus. Therein lies the profound truth of what God started, and he will finish, and what you can ask for. So what, what, what do you do with all this? This is only one verse. What do you do with it? How about this? To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Praise comes out of us. That's what's in us because of what God has done for us. Not just what God has done in our past, but what he's doing right now and what he will do. The stuff that we wouldn't vote for, that he's so committed to us, that he wants to transform us. Listen to this and we're done. Speaking of the totality of God's work in our life and the wonderful love of Christ being poured out in our hearts, he says, God is not simply the God of former people. There's still a work for this generation and every generation to do. And he is able for this generation even as he was able for the generations of the past. And he is able forever and ever. There will never be a moment that glory is not due him, and therefore there will never be a moment that he is not working through you to do immeasurably more than you will ask or imagine. So, in your moments of great success, he is able. In your moment of greatest fear, he is able. When you have failed, he is able. When the challenge ahead is too great, he is able. Forever and ever and ever, glory is due him, for he is always able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Amen, church? Amen. Let's thank him for that. God, we um, offer your, our own praise and doxology now. There is so much um, at odds with your affections for your people. Our own hearts want to scream a a louder word. The adversary wants to scream a lie. Our own uh, shortcomings want to say something at times greater than your gospel. And yet, and yet Paul reminds us that this amazing truth of you taking dead people and making them live and giving them eternal inheritance and the power of the Holy Spirit, that in all of that, that we believe, truly believe that you can do far more abundantly than anything we could ask or imagine. And you do it through the power that raised Jesus from the dead and raised us to new life. God, we want to praise you today. That's what this is about right now is our own doxology to thank you for the good things that you have done. God, every place we see you working, even if it's a whisper, I pray that what happens in our heart is praise. Don't let anything, anyone snatch that. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.